all through history, people have changed the world. They've built cities, empires, and civilizations. Discover ways to help us see the past more clearly and the future more boldly. People fought for peace, stood up for beauty, gave their all to see the value attached to every human soul, not just the privileged few. Many are heroes, most are forgotten, but all faced the challenge that brought their movement to a stop, a final battle no man has ever won, no man except for one. One man did more, changed more, and revealed more than any who came before or after. One man loved more, gave more, and forgave more than all others combined. One man inspired more art, more healing, more learning, and left more hearts burning than any other. And he did it all without an army, without worldly influence and power, never leaving a single word on the paper, but a library of love and people's hearts. A birth celebrated by billions, a life that splits our time in the before and after, a death that changed everything forever. Because for the first time in the history of our sad world, spinning round, one man looked death in the face and death back down. Because this man, this one man, was unstoppable. The grave couldn't hold him, hate couldn't mold him, the world couldn't contain him, and neither can our minds because he is the ultimate. More than, more than a teacher, more than a prophet, more than a philanthropist, more than a philosopher, shaman, spirit, God. He is untamable, uncontrollable, unexplainable, and unkillable. Just ask the people who tried. He's alive with forgiveness ongoing, grace ever flowing. Arms still holding your world and your life and everything in it. Bigger than the sin that says you can't win it. More ferocious than the fears that frees you. Stronger than the problem that sees you. He is God. He is unstoppable. He is here in grace and truth. Holding out his hand asking, do you want to be unstoppable too? Because all it takes is four words. Easy to say, hard to do. Four words. I believe in you. Mean it. Really mean it. And you will be unstoppable too. That is good news today that we are unstoppable. We gather today to remember the cross and to remember Good Friday. You know, Friday is a day that um, is often kind of looked forward to in our culture. Uh, for years, people have said, hey, thank God it's Friday, meaning uh, that the weekend has arrived, that we finally made it, we're gonna have fun, we're gonna do some things. This was all pre-coronavirus. Uh, uh, maybe uh, if you work um, in uh, uh, certain industries where Friday and the weekend is busy, you look forward to Friday because that's when you're able to earn extra money, extra tips. Or, you know, Friday is also a time for sports, right? People go out, kids, high school football. Uh, one of my favorite shows of all time, it's an amazing show uh, called Friday Night Lights. Just talks about high school football in Texas. So, you know, we, we, we see Friday through a lot of different lenses. We say, thank God it's Friday. In our family on Friday, it was always uh, Friday night, movie night. And we would get our kids when they were little, and we would, we would gather them around the television. We'd pick a TV show, usually an animated show or a cartoon or something, and, and we'd watch it together. And one of my kids' favorite animated movies is the movie Frozen. 
Some of you remember Frozen. Uh, in that movie is one of my favorite characters of all time from an animation standpoint, and that's Olaf. Olaf is like always joyful. He's always bringing happiness to other people. He's always thinking about others and trying to uh, do things for others. And there's this amazing scene where Olaf finds Anna, who's basically almost frozen in uh, a castle, and he brings her into a room, and he gets a fire going for her so that it will warm her up. And as Anna starts to warm up a little bit, as she kind of starts to come back to herself, uh, she realizes that while the fire is warming her up and bringing her to life, it's killing Olaf. He's, he's a snowman. He's literally melting. And she looks at him and she says, Olaf, you're melting, you're melting. And Olaf makes this amazing statement. He says, some people are worth melting for. And friends, when I think about what Good Friday means, when I think about what Jesus did for us on the cross, it's the ultimate declaration that you are worth dying for. Jesus came and lived and died and rose again so that you could experience new life and a new beginning in him, so that you could experience salvation in him. You are worth dying for in your life. And so that's why we call this Friday Good Friday, the ultimate Friday, the Friday above all other Fridays. Not just thank God it's Friday, thank God for Friday. Because without the cross, we don't get to the resurrection. Without the death, we don't get to new life. Jesus paid for our sins. He paid the price for us so that we could experience God's goodness and God's grace. So what I want to do with you today is I want to go back to the beginning of that holy week 2,000 years ago. And I want to take a long look at that week as we move forward in the week towards the cross and what Jesus did for us on that particular Friday, and I want us all to remember that Good Friday declares to us that you are worth dying for. So if you go back to that holy week 2,000 years ago, it was on a Sunday when um, Jesus uh, uh, was, was uh, riding into the city of Jerusalem. We call it Palm Sunday. And actually, if you go back even earlier, Jesus was on a hundred-mile journey from Galilee headed towards the city of Jerusalem. And multiple times he would tell his disciples, his followers, as they were walking along, that he would be crucified, that he would be handed over, that he would die, and that he would rise again. In fact, you see it in Mark chapter 10. If you look at Mark chapter 10, beginning in verse 33, this is actually the third time in Mark that Jesus has made this kind of a statement. And in Mark chapter 10, 33, Jesus says, listen, he said, we're going up to Jerusalem where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and the teachers of religious law. They will sentence him to, to die and hand him over to the Romans. They will mock him, spit on him, flog him with a whip, and kill him. But after three days, he will rise again. Listen, what happened on Good Friday was no mystery to Jesus. He declared what was going to happen clearly to his disciples and followers multiple times. This is the third time just in the Gospel of Mark as they're on their way to the city of Jerusalem. He knew exactly what was coming. He knew exactly what was going to go down. He knew exactly what he was going to go through as he moved towards the city of Jerusalem. And he was willing to do it for you and for me. And so Jesus is on the way, the way to Jerusalem. 
before we get to Holy Week. What's interesting about that is uh, that phrase, the way, became a term that was used to describe literally what it was to be a follower of Jesus. The early followers of Jesus were called the followers of the way. It's a term used often in Mark, so Jesus is on the way. I don't know that his disciples fully understand what's happening. They just kind of hear that, hey, the way is going to lead to Jerusalem, and in Jerusalem there's going to be suffering and death and resurrection, and I'm not sure they could put it all together, but they're on the way. So Sunday, Palm Sunday, they finally make it to Jerusalem. Jesus rides in from the east on a donkey. The people gather and see him as a hero of working class people and the poor and they celebrate him and they lay down their cloaks for him and their branches and they cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That, that phrase, Hosanna, it's like a Hebrew prayer. It means save now. And so they're saying he's come to bring salvation. He's come to move and work in our world now. And they're celebrating who Jesus is. But Jesus Jesus wasn't the only person to ride into the city 2,000 years ago on Palm Sunday. Coming in from the east was Jesus on a donkey, but listen, coming in from the west would have been Pilate. Pilate with his armed soldiers, Pilate representing the power of Rome, Pilate who was the governor, because both Jesus and Pilate were coming to Jerusalem since it was Passover week, which was literally the most important uh, week and event that would be celebrated in the Jewish calendar. And Pilate's coming into the city to make sure as the governor, everybody's in line, everything remains under control. He's there to kind of make sure everything's working properly, so he would have come in from the west and he would have come into the city of Jerusalem in a display of power and strength with banners and soldiers and helmets and gear and golden eagles on poles and all of this would have represented the power of Rome. So Jesus comes in on Sunday from the east representing the kingdom of God and Pilate comes in on Sunday from the west representing the kingdom of Rome and the two are going to meet head on on Friday. It's just setting it up on Sunday. Monday comes along. Monday is known as the day of judgment. Jesus clears out the uh, people that are selling in the temples and the money changers. Um, he gets into conflict with the religious leaders. Tensions begin to rise. That's Monday, 2,000 years ago, on that final week of his life. Tuesday is known as the day of conflict. On Tuesday, Jesus starts to get an even more conflict with the religious leaders. On Tuesday, Judas agrees to betray Jesus and sell him out, the day of conflict. Wednesday is known as the day of silence. We don't have any information about what happened on Wednesday, the last week of Jesus' life. Thursday is the day of preparation. Jesus gets his disciples um, ready. They go to that upper room for the Last Supper, which kind of gives us the, the, uh, the institution of communion. It comes from that whole experience. He gathers with his disciples. Uh, he talks about his broken body, his shed blood. He's setting us up to remember him and what he's going to do. And then ultimately, he gets betrayed on Thursday. And on Thursday... He begins to go through mock trials, three Jewish, three Roman, through Thursday night into Friday. Friday is the day of crucifixion. And Friday, he's brought before Pilate. Finally, head to head, 
the kingdom of God and the kingdom of Rome. And their exchange is interesting. You see it in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15, beginning in verse 2. When Jesus is first brought before him, he's already been beaten, he's already bloodied, and it says, Pilate asked Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And most commentators say in the original language, the idea is this, are you the king of the Jews? Like, you're all beaten and bloodied and you're the king of the Jews, really? But what I love is Jesus' reply, right? You read, Jesus replied, you have said it. But the original language, I think, is a little more strong than that. It's more like Jesus says this, you say so. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, you say so. So Jesus is no pushover, friends. He's giving it right back to Pilate. And then the leading priests kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, speaking to Jesus, aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, which, by the way, Pilate probably couldn't remember the last time he had questioned anybody who refused to answer him. He said nothing much to Pilate's surprise. So Pilate doesn't really have enough to crucify him based on what he's heard. So Pilate says, hey, just go, you know, go, go flog him, go whip him. So they take him and, and they, they whip him and they flog him, they beat him. Now, a flogging in the ancient world was a, a horrendous thing. 39 lashes was usually what people would receive. And what they would do is they would take um, what they called a cat of nine tails. They would take a whip that had uh, all these different tails in the whip, and they would tie glass and bone and all kinds of things inside those tails. And then they would take the person who's being flogged, and they would tie them with their hands wrapped around a post so that their backs were very taut and tight. And then they would so the, so the skin on the back is taut, is, is tight, and they would take those whips, and they wouldn't just beat people with them, they would just sort of lay that whip on that tight skin on somebody's back, and then they would yank with it and just rip flesh, I mean, dig into people. This is how intense it was to be flogged in that way in the ancient Roman world. 60% of people died just from the flogging. Like, six out of 10, died just from the flogging. Jesus was no wimp, friends. He was strong and tough, and he endured that flogging, and he's still breathing, and they breathe. They eventually, um, and, and by the way, there is indication in the Bible that what Jesus went through when he was beaten and flogged was actually very extreme. You see it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. It's speaking of Jesus. It says, he personally carried our sins in his body on the cross so that we can be dead to sin and live for what is right. Now look at this. It says, by his wounds, you are healed. That word wounds is kind of a unique word in the original Greek language this was written in. And the word wounds was used to refer to particularly brutal beatings, the kinds of beatings that slaves at the time went through. And it sort of suggests that Jesus could have been beaten with more than just 39 lashes. Jesus could have been beaten uh, even more intensely in all of this. So he's brought back to Pilate. Pilate sees this man just endured what would kill the majority of people, and he's still standing. Pilate doesn't have anything on him that would lead to crucifixion, and 
So, and the whole reason Pilate's involved is because the Jews couldn't crucify him. The religious leaders couldn't crucify him. Only the Romans could issue a death sentence like that. And so Pilate goes back out to the people and has him brought out to the people. And, 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 you know, and he basically says, what do I do with this guy? And the crowd is just unrelenting. The same crowd that cheered him on Sunday are now chanting, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so finally Pilate washes his hands of it and hands him over to be crucified. Jesus would have probably been in pre-state shock by the time he began to carry the cross to the place called Golgotha, known as the place of the skull or Calvary. As he walked that walk, it's possible that he carried a full cross like we see in Christian art, but it's more likely from archeological evidence that he carried the cross beam the cross beam would have just been that piece that goes uh, horizontally uh, on the cross, and it probably would have weighed 75 to 100 pounds. And as he's carrying that, he's already feeling this incredible pressure. In fact, at one point, he collapses and can't go any further. And Simon of Cyrene steps out and begins to help carry the cross the rest of the way. Once he gets to the cross, they would have nailed his hands and his feet Often we think of them nailing the hand in the palm, kind of right here, but again, archeology span uh, suggests that they very well may have put the nail in the wrist, sort of right here, because if they just put it in the palm, the hand would often rip out when they're being crucified, but if they put it in the wrist between those two bones that come together, this would have been considered the hand in the ancient world, this whole part of the human body. And so more than likely they put the nail in his wrist and Romans were masters of torture. I mean, crucifixion was a gruesome way to die, and they had mastered how to do it. They would have placed that nail right on the median nerve to send uh, just ultimate pain through a person's body, and he endured it. In fact, when the biblical writers get to the crucifixion of Jesus, they give us almost no information in the Bible. It's usually just a sentence. Check this out. Mark chapter 15, verse 24, says this, and they crucified him. And that should say something to us today. In the ancient world, crucifixion was so awful, it was so horrendous, it was so horrible, people had many witnessed individuals be crucified, that the biblical writers couldn't bring themselves to say anything more than this. This was enough and then some. They crucified him. In fact, when you look through uh, history, one of the things you see in history in the ancient world is that Christians had a lot of symbols in the early centuries. You can see from archaeological digs and um, different uh, things that have been ex excavated that they would use like uh, a ship to represent like Noah's Ark and the ship represented God. It was a big symbol in the early church, carrying us through the storm. Uh, they represented Jesus as a good shepherd. That was another huge symbol. Uh, symbol. The Holy Spirit as a dove, that was an important symbol. But nowhere in the early church community do you see a cross. The cross was not worn around necks. The cross was not painted on walls. The, the first historical reference to a cross was in the fifth century AD 
carved in a door at the church of Santa Sabina, 500, 400 years after Jesus was crucified. And what that should remind us of is this. The cross was such a horrific event that the early followers of Jesus didn't feel like they could even bring themselves to use it as a symbol of the faith. It wasn't used until 100 years after crucifixion was made illegal. 100 years after crucifixion was made illegal, believers finally began to be able to use the cross emotionally as a symbol of God's love. And it's amazing that God in his love turned the cross into that symbol. I mean, it would be like today, us singing of the blessed rope or you know, the blessed 357 magnum or singing about the electric chair or the gas uh, situation. I mean, you know, like just unbelievable when you think about what God's love can do. It can take a symbol of torture and death and it can turn it into a picture of love. That's exactly what happened on the cross. Jesus hung on the cross. He hung on the cross for multiple hours on Friday. He made seven different statements from the cross. One of the most powerful statements was the statement, it is finished. And when he said, it is finished, it's a fascinating phrase because it was a phrase at the time that could be used on certain bills that had been paid in full when the debt with a grocery store or whatever had been paid or the market, they would write that phrase, it is finished, the debt's paid, it's been, it's been done. And that's what Jesus did for us. He paid the debt, he fulfilled the obligation. He went to the cross for us, died on the cross for us. God's love turns this instrument of torture into this instrument of love for us. In fact, I was um, reading a while back about uh, this guy named John who was riding the Metrolink train in LA. He got in a terrible crash. And um, they thought they had basically gotten all the survivors and then they found another survivor who told them they thought there was another survivor. And so as they're kind of dig, you know, digging through um, all of the rubble of this train crash, they find this guy, John, they had to bring in the jaws of life. They had to basically excavate uh, him to get him out and he made it out alive. But what was interesting is he didn't think he was gonna make it out alive. He thought he was gonna die. And what he did in those final moments um, of, his, uh, of what he thought would be the final moments of his life is he wrote a message to his wife and kids in his own blood on the wall, telling them how much he loved them. And that's what the cross is, friends. The cross is God writing a message in his own blood, telling us how much he loves us, telling us how much he cares for us. And we need to remember that today because we look on the news and we look around our culture and we look around in our world and we see death and loss and pain and it could be easy to think that God is just removed and God doesn't really care. But Good Friday reminds us that God is still good. Good Friday reminds us that God is still moving. Good Friday screams to us that God still loves us, that God is still for us. Good Friday sets up for us that no matter what we're going through, if God would go that far for us. He will see us through what we're facing in our lives today. So in a moment, we're going to take communion together. And communion is our opportunity to sort of go back 
to that upper room with Jesus on Thursday as he prepares his followers for his death. And he took the bread and he broke it and he took the cup and he asked them to eat and to drink in remembrance of him. And so we're doing this a little different. We're doing it virtually. I want to encourage you, uh, if you haven't gotten your communion supplies, we're going to have a song of reflection and worship. And it's a perfect opportunity for you to get those communion supplies now, uh, some juice, some bread. Uh, if you don't have that, I, I, I think it's less important what you have. It's more important your heart and who we're remembering. God knows all of our individual situations. Just get what you can, uh, crackers, water, whatever you have. And we're going to come back together after this time of reflection and worship. And we'll take communion together virtually as believers all around the world. So let's go now to a time of reflection.
2,000 years ago, Jesus gathered in an upper room with his disciples. It was on Thursday, just before he was betrayed and then eventually crucified on Friday. And he instituted something for us to do in remembrance of him. In fact, it's the primary thing he told us to do in remembrance of him. He took the bread, he took the cup, and he said, eat and drink in remembrance of me. And so this is our opportunity to pause, to remember why that, that horrible Friday is considered good and why we can thank God for Friday because it paved the way for our own salvation. So I hope you've gotten your communion elements pulled together at home. And I'm gonna take some bread now and just remind us that Jesus took bread and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Let's bow now and pray before we take of the bread. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus and all that he means for us in our lives. We're so grateful for his body broken for us and for how he provided the way of salvation for all of us. We give you thanks now and we remember in Jesus' name, amen. Let's take the bread now in remembrance of him. Jesus also took the cup and he said, this cup represents the new covenant in my blood. He says, drink in remembrance of me. You know, in our culture, people drink to forget, but Jesus reminded us to drink in remembrance, in remembrance of him. So now we're gonna take the cup, let's pray, and then we'll partake of it together. God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for Jesus and his blood that was shed for us. And now we take this cup and we remember all you did for us 2,000 years ago on the cross. We give you thanks and praise in Christ's name. Amen. Let's take of the cup. So friends, Today we gather virtually and we pause with believers all around the world and we remember. We remember the difficulty Jesus went through. We remember the pain he went through. We remember that he did it all for our salvation. This weekend at Easter, we're gonna celebrate. This is Easter, we're gonna, we're gonna remember that Christ rose from the dead, that the victory has been won. But the point of pausing on Good Friday is to remember that our freedom didn't come for free that it cost Jesus his life, that it was a tremendous sacrifice. And it reminds us that God is for us, even when it seems like a lot of things may be against us right now.
So our team now is gonna come and they're gonna lead us in a powerful song just to open our hearts and respond to God in Christ alone. Let's worship together.
incredible message by Pastor Judd and such a great time of worship. And one of the things I love from that song is that no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck you from his hand. I want you to hold on to that. We're going to discover exactly what that means this weekend. Easter at central.com. You can see all the experiences, the 15 different live experiences that we'll have. And you know, Pastor Judd challenged all of us to give a gift. So I want to encourage you to do just that, to give a sacrificial gift to provide hope this Easter. It's easy to give. You can type in your web browser, central.family. You don't need www or .com, central.family. Or you can go to hopeforthecity.tv or centralonline.tv. And there you'll find give links on all three of those sites. You can give a gift, you can provide hope and change someone's life this Easter. So thank you, thank you, thank you for your generosity and for making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, and invite like crazy to Easter. I know for those of us that normally attend and experience live that it could be a little depressing to think that you're not going to a church building this weekend to gather with a live central family. But I wanna let you know that our team has put in hours and hours and hours and weeks of work just to make this an incredible online experience. So make sure to tune in with us. Get to Easter at Central in your home, on your mobile device. But between now and this weekend, make sure that you're holding on to Romans 8. If God is for us, who could be against us? We'll see you at Easter.